All right, let's jump into the Bible. You guys ready this morning? We, are, we do not have a series right now, which means uh, we're taking the next couple weeks and just preaching a few things that, that have been stored up uh, in our hearts that we want to communicate to the church, that we feel the Holy Spirit is leading us in as a church. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in. Father, thank you. Thank you for your overcoming church today. Thank you for your presence this morning. And God, today as we as we continue worshiping you, we just declare that we want more of you, God. We need more of you. And we're asking for that. We're coming to you boldly. God, that we would have more of you in our life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Pastor Jason preached, I think, two weeks ago. He was the guy, if this is your first time, that was just up, did the little transition moment. Um, and he and his wife, Amy, they're, they're looking for a house. You know, they're, they're, they're praying for a home. They moved here from Australia. And, you know, they're, they're, they're praying for a home. And, and Amy and I, my wife and I, also named Amy, I know, weird, crazy, true, uh, we're also in the same boat. And so when we moved here, you know, we were renting, we're renting a house, and, and we have been desiring to buy a home. And no one really likes the church planter um, spreadsheet, the financial docket, so to speak. And so I can't tell you how many hoops I feel like Amy and I have been jumping through in order to get financed or to get a loan or, or whatnot. And I'm not sitting up here whining. It's just one of those moments where you're scratching your head and you're wondering what else you have to do. It doesn't feel that clear. No one can really tell me what I need to do in order to get this approval over here. No one seems to really know, but all they seem to really be able to communicate is, well... You kind of look like you're a startup business, and we're not real keen on that. <laughs> Commence me wanting to pull my hair out. And the truth is, there are a lot of things in my life or your life that kind of just make you want to pull your hair out at times, aren't there? Some of you who don't have a whole lot of hair or, or you know, just maybe scratch your, your head, pull your hair out a little bit more. Are there not? They're not things that, that get you frustrated, that get you, oh, you just want to wanna fight somebody over it, where you just don't have clarity. You're frustrated. Maybe it's a decision that you just don't know what to make, or it feels like the same agonizing decision that you've made over and over and over again. Yes. Of course there are. There are lots of those kinds of moments in your life that just feel sometimes agonizing. They're frustrating. They're unclear. If, you, if you've seen the movie Bruce Almighty, which I love, I'm a Jim Carrey fan, and if you remember that moment where he's driving in the car, this is before he's become God, if you haven't seen the movie, and he's praying for God to give him a sign 
Anybody remember that scene? And he has the beads in his hand, and a dump truck literally pulls out in front of him. And it's a dump truck full of signs. And those signs are saying things like, wrong way, dead end, turn around, etc., etc., etc. And so he's praying for a sign, and he's praying for a sign, and he's got all the signs right in front of him, and he just doesn't see it. And one of my favorite scenes, he, he has the car accident, he gets out, and here he was praying with these prayer beads, and he throws them into the lake, and he says, I smite you, O mighty smiter, in only Jim Carrey fashion. He's yelling at God because he's so frustrated and unclear about what to do. A lack of clarity can be really frustrating. And in general, there's probably one, two, three things that every single person in here right now doesn't have great clarity about. And so you wonder, what am I supposed to do? And so this message, the title of this message is, well, what to do when you don't know what to do. Rocket science, isn't it? I want you to do this. Um, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 22. We're going we're gonna to take a look at the life of David today. David is a king or soon-to-be king. He's anointed king. He's the young shepherd boy. If you've, if you've heard the story of David, if you've heard the account, he's the shepherd boy anointed king. He fights Goliath, slays the giant as a young teenager. Songs are sung about him in his, in his honor and in his stead and, and an extraordinary amount of faith. And he's known as the man after God's own heart. Extraordinary life. He's the warrior poet. As he wrote the majority of the Psalms in the Old Testament, many of which have been turned into song and we still Sing them today. We're talking thousands of years. You've written some pretty good hits. When people are singing your songs for a few thousand years, take that and sing, Backstreet Boys. You got nothing. You got no game on my man, David. All right, joking aside. First Samuel 22. Verse 1 and 2, we're going to find ourselves reading about David when he doesn't know what to do. David has been anointed king, but he's not king. In other words, he knows what's supposed to happen. He knows what his life should look like, and yet... He does not see it. Ever been there? Where you just, you know where you should be, and yet you're just not there, and you're wondering to yourself, why? 
you're frustrated. It's not clear. You're working hard. You're trying hard. You're praying hard. You feel like you're doing a lot of the right things, and yet the, it just hasn't materialized the way that you have wanted it to. And not only that, David has the current king, King Saul, hunting him, trying to kill him because he's jealous knowing that his throne is eventually going to go to David. And so the king that David has protected is now the king that's trying to take his life. Now, chances are he's a little frustrated. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 5. It said, David, the scriptures say that David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. And 400 men were with him. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. David is a soldier church of great renown. He is the slayer of Goliath. This did not go unnoticed. As I mentioned previously, songs were sung about the warrior poet David. He is famous. But now, this man after God's own heart, his reputation is, is being slandered. This is the classic moment of the wanted poster, you know, with, with the, the sketch of the person they're looking for. On every street corner in town, and word is out on the street. True or not, the king Saul is, is hunting David to try to kill him. The rebel David. And his reputation is being ruined and smeared and, and spread falsely throughout Israel. And so, what does David do? He hides in a cave, cave of Adulam or Adulam. I don't even know how you pronounce it. He finds a cave. My man David is running for his life, and he finds a really nice cave to go hide out in, to catch his breath for a minute. There's no question that David is confused. There's no question that David is struggling with a lack of clarity. There's no question that David is bothered by the fact that his king is trying to kill him and take his life. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that your frustration, it's real. Your lack of clarity is real. But you've got at least a glimmer of good news this morning hopefully it's not over someone trying to take your life. That's good news, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you over here. No one's trying to murder you right now. If they are, stick around after church. That way we can make sure you, you get to a place of safety, okay? 
But most of us aren't running from that right now, okay? But it doesn't change the fact that you find yourself confused, that you find yourself frustrated, and you find yourself wondering what to do when you don't know what to do. And there is a pattern that many humans make when they find themselves in this position. I know I do. We all have a propensity to make the same mistakes and make them over and over again when we just don't know what the next step is. David has escaped to a cave. Now, before I unpack this for you, ask yourself, when's the last time you were in a cave? Recent? Ever? Have you ever been to a cave? When I, growing up, as a kid, there was a cave not too far from us. It was called the Crawl Cave. And the only way to get into it was literally to get on your tummy and slide underneath this giant rock. And then it opened up. And then it had all of these you know, little tunnels. And every year there was some joker who went in there and couldn't find their way out. It was a legit cave, okay? This wasn't weak sauce. This was the real deal. And it was not too far from where I grew up. It was the Crawl Cave. I remember that cave. It was awesome. You, you spent time in there, and there was always that sense of, you know, you had that, 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 that cave breeze. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's just, it just, it's a little damp. It's cool. You know, it always feels nice and refreshing in the cave. But there's also that hint of danger. You know, the lights could go out in here. And when they do... We aren't going to be able to see Jack because, after all, it's a cave. And if we stay overnight in here, that's mm, going to be a little bit spooky. With me so far? Anybody ever watched Planet Earth? There's, a, there's an episode of Planet Earth. It's kind of like National Geographic where they're, where they're looking at one of the biggest caves in the world. It's in Indonesia. And... The cameras are zooming in and they're zooming out and you see this giant 300-foot mountain inside the cave or maybe a big hill, okay? And as it zooms in close, you realize this is not dirt, but it's bat guano, okay? A 300-foot pile of it, Okay? And then when it zooms in a little bit tighter, you see all kinds of movement happening in it. And it's loaded with roaches, okay? It is the most revolting scene you will ever see on your television, okay? And when you, when you read, or not read, when you hear the cameramen and camera women talking about it, they spent 30 days filming in this cave. And guess what they were over after about five minutes? Sitting in a cave with a giant load of bat poop filled with crawling roaches, okay? This is like the stuff of nightmares, and this is where they're filming, okay? My point in all of this is that caves are places that you visit, but they are not places that you live. And more often than not, 
when we find ourselves in a place of difficulty, we're a place where we're not hearing God, where he hasn't made things clear, we find ourselves a little cave to go hide out in, to be frustrated in, to be angry in, to be hurt in, and to be broken in. And I'm not saying this morning that there isn't a place for that in your life. You need to be able to feel things. You need to be able to taste things, to be bothered and to be frustrated. But more often than not, we try to live in the places that God has only asked us to visit. We set up camp in places that we're only supposed to be for a few minutes, for a few hours, maybe a, a few days. You know what I'm talking about, where, where you have stayed in that spot, and it was time for you to go, but you stayed anyway. You, you hung out in that cave because it felt good. But the truth is, a cave is never the kind of place that should be tempting to you or I to go get that home sweet home sign and hang it up on the wall or go down to Ikea, get some furniture and start arranging things because this is where I just want to live from now on. No. No, a cave is a place that you visit. It's not a place that you live. And more often than not, it is one of our greatest mistakes Think about the things that have caused you pain. The things that have left you not knowing what to do. Been through a divorce. Been through a relationship struggle. If you're, a, if you're a teenager in here and seen parents split up. If you're wondering uh, why you're in financial woe. If you're struggling with occupational frustration. Oftentimes, you can find yourself understandably being frustrated, but then that thing begins to turn into bitterness. Or you're just that person that just is perpetually angry. Or cry. You cry at the every time it gets brought up, you're a sack of tears. Well, what that clues us in on is that oftentimes we're setting up shop in a place where we're only supposed to be for a time. You're trying to live where God has only asked you to visit. With me so far? 1 Samuel 22, 5, it says that the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. Don't stay here. Go. Been nice having you. Adios. Don't live in the places you're only supposed to visit. Caves are good for you from time to time, aren't they? Yeah, sometimes you got to feel a little bit. I was at the bank this week, and I was pulling out Bank of America like I've done a thousand times. Taking a left into the left-hand turning lane. And there's a propensity for people who, who maybe aren't familiar with the area, or maybe they're just fast drivers. There's a little bit of a hill. 
And so you can come screaming up over the top of that hill. And all of a sudden, you are right up on the person who's pulled out of the bank and is turning left. That is exactly what happened this past week. And it's been years since I've been in one of these types of altercations. But the person that came up behind me was so mad, blaring on the horn, wouldn't stop. Jack and knife, jack knife to the left, to the right. I mean, just everything they could do. I finally just stopped the car. I was in the turning lane. It was already a red light because this guy was acting like a lunatic. I maybe didn't help the situation <laughs> because I rolled my window down and I said, knock it off. So light turns green, I turn left. Well, the guy decides, I'm going to follow him. Pulls up next to me. I mean, I'm 35, okay? Are you, are you 13 years old, you know? Window down, yelling at me to roll the window down. Like, pull over, let's fight. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you're an idiot. And I didn't say that, but I just was, you know, my dad used to blow people kisses that, that would do that. So just blow you a kiss. You know, I'm just going to be on my way. But here's the thing. It's been a long time. Some of, you, some of you have confessed your challenges with road rage, you know. It's been a long time since I've had somebody hassle me on the road. So much so that they're going to follow me and scream at me out the window. And I have to confess to you, I was mad. Like, really mad. As in, I wanted God to nuke that guy, Okay. <laughs> And I'm, I'm dead serious. My heart was, you know how when you get that mad, your heart's racing? And you're just rethinking, oh, if I, you know, one of these moments. And I got home, it was my day off, and I, and I instinctively knew that, that I was angrier than I should have been. There was something inside of me that just was, I was moved beyond the normative place of me needing to be angry in this moment. And the kids are downstairs, Amy's downstairs, and I just went upstairs because I needed a moment. Because I knew if I'm not careful, I'm going to stay in this place. And then as I stay in this place of being angry, I'm going to take it out on my wife. And I'm going to take it out on my kids who are just being kids and are loud and can be obnoxious and run around and spill things. But here I am, I, 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 if I'm not careful, I will try, I'll live here. But I'm only supposed to stay here as I spit everywhere up on stage, sorry. I, I, it's okay to have a righteous anger. It's okay to be bothered. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be hurt. But God hasn't invited you to stay there and set up shop and make that your home. Eventually, you've got to get out. And so I went upstairs, went into the closet, shut the door, and I just started praying because I was that hangry. I know it sounds maybe silly or crazy to you, but I had to get a grip because I was that mad. Some of you have lost jobs, and it has left you dinged. And what you need more than anything else is to get 
time with God and pray and seek him and get wholeness in your heart. I love, I love what we see here in this cave. Isn't it interesting that when David is down and frustrated and confused, guess who makes their way to him? 400 people who are feeling the exact same way that David is. What does the scripture says? It says in 1 Samuel 22, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. 400 people. I'm blown away by this. David is hiding in a cave. He's in distress. He's got no money. He doesn't know what to do. And guess who finds their way to him? People who are in distress. People who've got no money. People who don't know what to do. And isn't that true about your life? That the situation you find yourself in, you tend to find other people that are in the exact same situation you are. You guys with me this morning? Oh, there, there is amazing, when I meet somebody who struggles with bitterness, all I have to do is find their best friend, and I, can, I will bet the farm that their BFF is also someone who is struggling with bitterness. Why is that the case? Why do we, it's like a beckoning call to people who struggle with the same thing we do. We find them, we cling to them. And there's value there. I'm not saying that just because someone has the same struggle you have, you should run from them. But understand that when you have 400 people around you, their propensity is not to go. Their propensity is to stay. Because it feels really good when you're around a bunch of people who are dealing with what you're dealing with who are struggling to have victory where you're struggling to have victory. And it validates and it justifies where you are rather than driving you and pushing you to get out of that cave. Out of 400 people, how many of them had the courage to tell David to go? One. The prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. In other words, David, hey man, it's time to go. Don't stay here. All these other guys, they're great guys. I'm standing here, healthy and whole, here in God, and I'm telling you, you got to go, man. Go. Get out of here. My encouragement to you this morning, church, is to know the difference between friends who want you to stay and friends who will challenge you to go. You're going to have friends of all kinds, but you're going to have far fewer friends who actually challenge you to walk in the godly potential that God has put in your life. You got to know who those people are. And when they speak to you, listen to them. 
Pay attention to the person who has the courage to tell you what you don't want to hear. When is the last time you had a friend tell you something that you didn't like? It was probably something that you needed to hear. But more often than not, we get offended and we run to the people, the 400, that make us feel really good about where we are. Took a little bit more time than I was expecting on the front end of this. So I'm chopping a little bit on the fly. I know for me, when I, when I trust God, I assume that confusion will be gone. I expect that I won't really have pain. I expect that things will go right. I expect that darkness will be completely eliminated, uncertainty vanished. And yet scripture is literally filled with men and women who place their trust in God despite knowing what the next step is and even looks like. Yep, they might have taken a minute in this cave. They might have been broken and hurt and pained and they might have cried, they might have cussed. But then they got back out and they started living their life for God. I love the story of John Cavanaugh. He's a Jesuit priest who went to work for three months. I'm going to read this for you verbatim. Went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta, India. He was seeking a clear answer as to how best to spend the rest of his life. And on the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. She asked him, what can I do for you? And he said, pray for me. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. He voiced the request that he had been thousands of miles from the United States to spend time here. Pray that I have clarity. She said firmly, no, I will not. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. And Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for. She laughed and said, I've never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. When I don't know what to do, my tendency is to go and sulk in this little place that I'm only supposed to visit. My tendency is to get as many people around me that, that feel the way I do to support me staying in the place that I'm not supposed to be. And then when I'm really seeking answers and clarity and I just have to know God, before I take this step, I try to get as much information as I possibly can. God, give me clarity. God, give me clarity. God, reveal yourself. Make it clear. And I want you to hear there is a place to pray for God to make things clear. But more often than not, church, our need for clarity is more often our desire to eliminate the risk of trusting God.
Scriptures say in 2 Corinthians that we walk by faith and not by sight. And so when you are in a place where you don't know what to do, I've got great news for you today. That's okay. Guard your heart. Wait on God. Listen to the godly people around you. And be willing to take a step of faith even when you don't know where you're going. It's like the Indiana Jones in the last crusade moment. I know some of you are too young to have even seen it. Tragic. And he has to take that step out over the chasm and he can't see where his foot is going to, 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 to land. It's just like where David writes, your word is, it's a lamp unto my feet. I've got just enough light for the next step, but I don't know what is actually happening out here. But I've got enough trust to trust you here. One step at a time. One step at a time. You're finding yourself in a place where things are unclear, where things are foggy, where you don't know what to do. I've got the most simple encouragement for you today. Stop panicking and trust God. Just renew your trust in him today. Put your faith in him afresh. So often I look for the answers more than I look for the one who gives the answers. And our hearts need to be longing more than just for God to show us the next step that we would be have more of his presence in our life. More of him in our life. I'll wrap with this. Psalm 142. David wrote this when he was in this cave. It's called a mass skill, which is a song or prayer of instruction. Because he learned so much in his limited time in this cave before he was told to leave. Would you do this? Why don't you stand to your feet while I read it? See, there are a lot of people in Scripture who didn't have great answers. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Jacob, Esau, Jeremiah, Joseph, Moses, Rachel, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, Daniel, Peter, Paul, James, John, and even Jesus. If you remember when he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what do we do? We do what Jesus did. We do what David did. We trust God, even though we don't know what tomorrow holds. David wrote this. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my 
complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me, God. Look and see, there's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. David voices his agony, his frustration to God. God is a safe place for you to bring things to him. But you'll notice even in the psalm, he doesn't stay there. Jesus, God, I thank you that you are my refuge and you alone are my portion. Things might be really frustrating and things might be really tough. But you know what I don't even see David praying for is, God, make this clear. Give me answers so I can take a step. No, he doesn't ask. He simply reminds himself who God is and who he is to himself. God, you are my refuge and you and you alone are my portion. You're enough. You're enough for me. Is God enough for you today? I'm not making light of whatever you might be going through, whatever you're dealing with. Is God enough to walk you through it? See your portion, see your refuge. My encouragement to you today is that he would become that.